Oh my goodness. Good morning. Welcome to Courage Church. Um, my name, like you said, my name is Drew Borowski, and I see a lot of familiar faces. Um, I've been going to Courage Church since, gosh, like mid-2016 or so, and just really connected with like the Bender's Hearts and the mission of this church, and it's been home ever since, and yeah, it's been a huge blessing to get to bring my wife in, too. We got married just shy of two months ago. It, yeah. Keep right here. Right here. It happened right here. And she was right here, and I couldn't keep it together <laughs> at all. Um, so some friends and I, over the next few weeks, are going to be doing a mini-series, an HBO mini-series, on Sunday morning, yeah, called, uh, we're calling it The Anatomy of Joy. I know a few years back, Jacob, Pastor Jacob and Pastor Don did a really incredible series on the fruit of the Spirit, and I, I know we're going to lift some from that today. If you get a chance, go engage with that. I know that's on the website, and if you know the fruit of the Spirit, it's love, joy, peace, pay, joy. It's the second one. It's got to be important. Um, but yeah, Pastor Jacob preached an incredible message on joy a few years ago, but we're going to be diving into that over the next few weeks, um, just a little more, see what all we can mine out of that. Um, when it comes to joy, when I say joy, what do, you, what do you think of? I mean, joy is interesting because, like, we can probably all picture it. I'm sure we're all picturing something awesome in our heads right now, but it's kind of hard to put into words. It can be hard to describe. Um, and I know what comes to mind for me is, I, well, when I think of joy, I think of like just some kids in a ball pit. <laughs> That's me and my wife. A few months ago, right downtown, it, there was a huge ball pit in 1001 Woodward. If as an adult, in your adult life, if you ever get a chance to go into a ball pit, take it. Some of you are frightened and terrified right now of me saying that because I'm sure there's some grossness. Just put that out of your mind. Jump in a ball pit <laughs> without thinking about it. It's actually Ashley's birthday today, so we're, gonna, we're not going to sing. We're not going to sing, but just give her a hug and wish her a happy birthday later. <laughs> um, I know some kids here or like all the kids downstairs, or if you're a parent or a grandparent or know a kid or are a kid at heart, when I say joy, maybe you think of the Pixar movie, Inside Out. I love this movie so much. I, I cried. It was inc I, I think I cry a lot, maybe, but <laughs> it was an easy one for me. Um, and also, this is kind of my spirit animal, because if you ever see me in a coffee shop, in, in the coffee shop I work at downtown, this is probably how I'll greet you, just arms up in the air, like so excited to see you. That is, yeah, come visit us. <laughs> but this is the first thing that came up when I typed in Google, uh, what does joy look like? And I thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing I had ever seen, the cutest thing I had ever seen. I swear, our dog makes that face. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you can tell me that animals can't experience joy <laughs> after seeing that face and wake, me waking up every morning to our 100-pound German Shepherd making that face. He's, it means he's got to go. <laughs> But, yeah, I think these pictures show well. I think something this exercise shows really well is that joy is contagious. That when you see it, you know it. So, actually, a few of us, like I said, over the next few weeks are going to be sharing with you what 
joy looks like in the light of Christ and, and what it can be for you and the world, like practically. Um, so today, though, we're going to be focusing on a small snippet of Scripture that it's something I'm sure that many of us have heard. Um, it was the first thing that came to my mind when we started talking about joy because this verse, this snippet of a verse, has meant a lot to me over the last few years. And uh, maybe it's something you've seen on a pincushion. I don't know what a pincushion is, to be honest. But, or, or a pillow. Maybe a pincushion is a pillow. I don't know what the difference is. Someone tell me after. But, or, or even a motivational poster. This sounds like something that would go good on a motivational poster. But it meant a lot to me. And maybe it's a promise you guys, some of you hold to in your life. But it's the verse, the joy of the Lord is your strength. I'm sure if, you got anyone, if we've been around a Christian or have spent any time engaging with the Bible uh, or church, this is something, this is a phrase that you've heard. And I know it's something I've heard my whole life. Um, and when you look at, what's interesting is it sounds really motivational, like something that would rally people even. You know, I've heard uh, we had a boss who would use it to rally people sometimes, and I don't know how that was supposed to work. But what's interesting is when you look at who's saying it, and what was going on in this Old Testament story at the time, it's like, it's pretty baffling. Like, oh, that guy? He was saying this? It, it made me kind of, like, digging into this over the last, like, few weeks, this really made me think, like, have I been thinking about this correctly? Or what, what does this mean? What does this even mean if that's the guy who's saying it? So um, if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll use them in a few minutes, but turn to Nehemiah 8. It's probably safe. And it, this snippet is on the tail end of verse 10, but, we'll, and, and we'll get there. <laughs> but it's good to have them out. Some of us, if we grew up in the church or uh, grew up reading the Bible, when, when we hear Nehemiah, we think, oh, the wall guy. The guy who, the guy who built, a, built a wall. And, and that's not all he was known for, but he did that. He did that, and that's a, that is a thing that happened. Um, and what's interesting about Nehemiah's story, though, is you can't really uncouple Nehemiah's story from the story of his friend Ezra. And if you're looking in your Bible, Ezra is the book right before Nehemiah. And actually what's interesting, I, I found out, is that Ezra and Nehemiah up until about 1,700 years ago or so, were one book. I think it was just Ezra. And then someone said, this Nehemiah guy is pretty great. I, he, maybe he should get his own book and cut it out. Whoever the people are who decide these things, I don't know who they are or what they do, but they're out there. And they decided this Nehemiah guy, he deserves his own section of this whole thing. But yeah, they were one book. And, and another thing that's interesting is you can't actually tell Nehemiah's story or Ezra's story without telling the story of their predecessor, was this man named Zerubbabel. I can't believe I just said that out loud correctly. Maybe I didn't say it correctly, but I said it with confidence, and I think you can too. <laughs> so I don't know who these people are who decide who gets their own book. If you look before Ezra, there is no Zerubbabel book. I think we should start a letter-writing campaign right now. Write to the people who decide these things. We demand Zerubbabel. We want the book of Zerubbabel and Jacob and Don while they're at it. We want a book of Jacob and Don or something. <laughs> but here's the story. Try and follow along. I'm going to give you the context, and then we'll catch up to Nehemiah 8. 
So um, this all takes place during the exile, all right? It's in the middle of the Old Testament, and we, the Old Testament is the story of God's people, and we're in the middle of it at this point. So this, country, this empire comes into the people of God's city, Jerusalem, this empire called Babylon. I'm sure we've, maybe we've all heard Babylon before that word. And they come in and they destroy the city of God. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy God's people's city as their capital, their everything. And not only do they destroy the city, but they also destroy their temple in the city. And this is, this is the place where God's, this is God's house. This is where God lives to them. This is the dwelling place of God. And they just destroy it. And then they take a lot of the people back with them to their country and do what you do when you take people whose city you just destroyed various things. They did enslavement, all these things. But um, 50 years later, Babylon starts allowing groups of people to go back to Jerusalem. So Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah, they're in that whole time of time period, okay? So if you're tracking with me, here's, here's what they did just really quickly. It's interesting because all their stories kind of mirror each other and their efforts kind of mirror each other. Zerubbabel, um, he rebuilds the temple in Jerusalem. Ezra, he's a Bible teacher. He's a Torah scholar and a community organizer. And he organizes community around the law and heart of God and this teaching of the Torah. And then you have Nehemiah, who's famous for building the wall around, Israel, around Jerusalem. And each of their stories begin with the king of the country that took them, giving them resources and, their, and support to go back to Jerusalem and do their thing. And the way stories go, this person, this leader, these three guys, each of them, they faced opposition. And then as stories go, they overcome that opposition. That's how stories go, right? Every story we've probably ever heard goes that way. But What's very bizarre about these stories is that when they overcome that opposition, it's not in the way you would think. And when I say that, you're like, oh, maybe it's better. No, it's not. It's not in a good way. It's actually very anticlimactic. If you know what I'm saying right now, it sound, it's almost like a Coen Brothers film where it's just, this isn't how this should have ended. What just happened? But that was great. So first we have Zerubbabel. So there's a king named Cyrus, and he tells Zerubbabel that he can go back to Jerusalem. And this is big news because these people who had been enslaved and in captivity in Babylon, their prophets and all their stories were saying that this exile and captivity wasn't the end of their story, that God had plans and purposes for them, that there was a hope still for a future messianic king, that God's presence would be in a new temple. These are the promises that they were holding on to, but now they're enslaved. And what happened to all these promises? They had hoped that God's kingdom would come over the nations, and they had Abraham's promises. And this sounds, this, they're going to send a group of people back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. This starts to sound like the thing we've been hoping for. This sounds like it's, it's moving. This sounds like this is going to get some steam. It sounds like God's moving. And it's with these hopes and dreams that we read into, I'm not going to say zero, I'm going to call him Z for now on. Um, and what's interesting is his name Actually, if you look at it, his name means born in Babylon. The way stories worked back then, your name was your function in the story. Like Adam and Eve, Adam means man. That's 
how names work a lot of the time in these kind of stories. But he goes back to Jerusalem with a group of people, and they build and dedicate the temple. This is a big deal. In the past, anytime temples had been built, think of the Temple of Solomon before you got the tabernacle in the wilderness when the Jewish people were uh, being led out of Egypt into the Promised Land. Think Prince of Egypt, best movie ever. Um, Every time that they had dedicated a temple prior to this, God showed up in a big way. Fire came down from heaven, it says. That's insane. That's amazing. So these people are saying, oh man, this is everything we've been hoping for. It's going to be big. It's going to be huge. And nothing really happens. They build it. They throw the party. They dedicate it. And it kind of just goes out with a whimper almost. None of their expectations were met unfortunate. There, there were people alive then who remembered the days and the glory of the old temples and when God showed up and when fire came down. And these elders in their community are just crying out in grief. It's nothing like the glorious past that they remember or all their glorious hopes for a future that, that they had been hoping for. And then towards the end of Zerubbabel's story, there it is, um, all the grandchildren of the Israelites who were not in the exile, so people who were already there just weren't taken. They try to help. They try to help out. They offer their services. Just, oh man, this was a bummer. Let's help out. And Zerubbabel says no. Just no. Won't let them help. And the story just ends. Kind of just fizzles out. The thing got built, but It's a shame, kind of, how that went. So then we have Ezra's story. 60 years later, Ezra, like I said, he's a Bible teacher. He's a Torah scholar. He's a community organizer. And there was a king um, named Artaxerxes. I want to say something else. That's not it. We're going to call him Artie from now on. Artie. (laughs) So Ezra goes to Artie and asks, can I lead a group of people back to Jerusalem? Because we want to teach the word of God. We want to teach our law, the Torah, the heart of God to the people and organize the community around that. And the king gives him the resources and a group of people and allows them to go back to Jerusalem. And if you were there 60 years ago hoping, oh man, maybe this was it, and then that wasn't it. Okay, maybe this is the thing. Maybe this is the thing we've been hoping for with the promises and the fulfillment. Maybe this is how God's kingdom gets established and Jerusalem gets back to the position it should be in in the world, you still have that hope. It's going to bring about all those, ah, maybe this is the time. So Ezra takes his group to Jerusalem. And he learns when he gets there that a lot of the exiled Israelites um, who were there from 60 years ago started taking wives. Nothing wrong with that, I guess. Um, I understand. And they start taking wives that aren't Israelites. Ezra says that the people have been corrupted because they married people who weren't Israelites. He, they, he, he actually equates the people that they married to enemies of God, basically. And Ezra takes it a step further from being that kind of jerk that would do something like that and say something like that. You don't say stuff like that. And gives a divorce decree over the land. 
you all just need to, you all need to divorce right now. You just need a divorce. It'll cleanse everything. We'll be okay if you guys all just get divorced. Do it. Made it a law. And actually, you read in the story that there's a list of names of people who signed the divorce decree and carried it out. There are some. It wasn't, this probably wasn't everyone. But the thing about that, God didn't tell Ezra to demand everyone get divorced because they were a different race. That's so silly. That's not the heart of God at all. That was what Ezra wanted. That's what Ezra thought was good in that moment. Sounds, sounds like he doesn't sound like he understood the heart of God for that one. And Actually, there's a prophet later in the Bible named Malachi who talks about how God is opposed to divorce. God doesn't, God's not a fan of divorce because especially in this time, marriage was an image of unity and diversity. That an image of God loving his people is reflected in these two people becoming one. But Ezra gets mad about the diversity and the story loses steam and kind of peters out and that story ends. And then you get to Nehemiah. I talk way too much. I'm sorry, guys. So we get to Nehemiah. We're almost to Nehemiah 8. This is great. So Nehemiah is an Israelite official serving in the Persian government. And he hears about the ruined state of Jerusalem's walls. Apparently they have holes in them or something. And he goes to Artie from before. And give, Artie gives him permission and a group of people and resources to travel back to Jerusalem. But he also gives him armed escorts. So now they are on their merry way with resources and armed escorts to go fix this wall around the city of Jerusalem. They start this building project. And Nehemiah, if you look through the story of Nehemiah, read it on your own, it's, it, some really cool things are said and some really cool things happen. In Nehemiah 5, there's a point where Nehemiah is just walking around the city and he starts declaring, and ask us why later if you want to know, but he starts declaring that you people need to free your slaves. We need the slaves to be freed. We need restitution to be made. We need to cancel everyone's debts. And it seems, it, all of this, his friend Ezra, the Torah scholar, he must have got that from the Torah scholar because all of that's in the Torah. So it sounds like Nehemiah is the guy who knows the heart of God for these people. Sounds like Nehemiah knows what's up in this situation. Um, but he's building a wall. And he starts to face opposition from the people living on the outside of that wall, as one does if you're on the outside and they're not going to let, they're building something to not let you in. What's interesting about that is another prophet named Zechariah, when he talks about the new Jerusalem, which was a word for what God's kingdom was supposed to look like, it was the coming hope of God's kingdom and what it would be. Zechariah talks about God's kingdom, Jerusalem, as being a city without walls. It actually says that God's presence would surround it and that people from everywhere would come and join in this family of God. But it, Nehemiah is here and he's informing the outsiders that they have no part in Jerusalem. 
It's remind, just reminding them, yeah, you're on the outside. Stay on the outside. He provokes them to hostility. I guess that's where the armed guards come in. And it, he carries out, Nehemiah, he carries out his vision with integrity and courage and armed guards. But it sounds like it was a vision that was opposed to what this new Jerusalem idea of what God's kingdom was supposed to look like. But that's not going to stop them. So Ezra and Nehemiah, they're friends, and they get together, and they say, okay, there's a Feast of Tabernacles coming up, big Jewish party. It's going to be amazing. It's amazing. It actually just ended last week, which is really cool. Um, Feast of Tabernacles is, ending, is about to start. Let's throw a massive party to remind everyone of what all this is about to remind everyone what they're here for, who they are, of their heritage. So Ezra and Nehemiah bring about a spiritual renewal among the people. This party they threw was the greatest revival service in history, probably. It was a party. It was crazy. There were probably a million people. Um, The law was read on a wooden platform, as we'll read in a second, by Ezra for six hours a day, for seven days, and the people were just hooked and listening, and there was lots of good food because the Feast of Tabernacles was going on, lots of good drink. People were confessing their sins. People were making vow renewals to God. People were making vow renewals to the Torah. They were celebrating that the temple was there back and that the walls were restored. And this is where we find Nehemiah 8. This is starting in Nehemiah 8, verse 1. This is the ESV. It says, all the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. So, on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women, and all who were able to understand. He read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men and women and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. Beside him on his right stood a bunch of people whose names I'm not going to say or pronounce. Ezra opened the book. (laughs) This is in the next verse. All the, people who, all the people could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, the people all stood up. Ezra praised the Lord, the great God, and all the people lifted their hands and responded, Amen, Amen. Then they bowed down and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. The Levites, a lot of names I'm not going to say, instructed the people in the law while the people were standing there. They read from the book of the law of God, making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people understood what was being read. The Levites were basically just translating for everyone who didn't know the language at the time that it was written in. Next verse. Then Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest and teacher of the law, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to to those who have nothing prepared. Other translations say, to those who have nothing. These are the outsiders and the poor and the people who couldn't participate otherwise. 
Next, the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for this is a holy day. Do not grieve. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food to the people who didn't have anything, and to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. So they threw a huge party. They threw a massive party. And in this party, people seemed like they were getting it, and they started to repent. And from, repent from going their own way and not God's way. God has a huge heart for people inside and outside. And when they did decide to follow God's heart for the law, the poor and the outsider who didn't have the means to participate in this huge party were fed and included, is what those last verses say. See, that's what brings the Lord joy. Our verse we're looking at is that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And he says that right after he says, bring the poor the food. Bring the people who don't have means to join in the food. That's how God is honored. It's when we get it. It's when we get his heart. If, you guys grew, if any of you grew up in the church, in the late 90s or early 2000s, there was a song we used to sing. It was called, Do You Feel the Mountains Tremble? And I, it is a long, drawn-out party of a song, and, I, and if people are playing it like well, it is just going to go and go and go, and it's great. We were kind of reminiscing about it earlier. And actually, at the end of the chorus, I remember there being a line that I never understood where he says... Um, Songs that bring you hope, songs that bring you joy, dancers who dance upon injustice. And I was like, never. I don't know what that means. I don't know if that's in the Bible. It sounds like it's just a throwaway line, but it's not. The kind of party we're talking about is the kind of party that dances upon injustice. I think reading this section of scripture for the first time, that clicked with me what that could mean. It's a God party when metaphorically and in reality, injustice is being danced upon. We get to see it every Wednesday, Monday, when we've had services out at the reconciliation, yeah, it's that way, at the reconciliation table. When, when Jeremiah with, or James, the biggest smile, bust people in who I don't know if they would have been able to get there otherwise, and when we're able to help anyone, we want to make sure that anyone who wants to can be included in that. And I believe wholeheartedly that that brings God joy. The, law, the joy of the Lord was their greatest strength. Not, not military might. I'll get to that part in a sec. But you remember J.P. Dorsey? He preached here last, Saturday, uh, last Sunday morning. He was actually one of our professors, in, one of my professors in Bible college. He's one of their professors in the master's program. He made us do a book called Strength Finders. Has anyone here done Strength Finders 2.0? My dad has, Emily has, <laughs> Ashley has. I knew that. Uh, um, Strength Finders. You, you take a test, I think it's 20 bucks, and it's a lot of it's for businesses and for churches, but they outline out of these 50 strengths, here are your five greatest strengths, five greatest weaknesses. Here are some things you need to work on. Here are things you're good on. Let's utilize these. And I, it's funny because I remember 
JP looking around the room, he's like, okay, Drew probably got positivity. And I'm like, yeah, that was, that was my number one. Just like that joy we saw earlier, like, yeah. But even more like this, he go, JP go, who talked last Sunday, he goes, okay, who got a strength called Woo, spelled W-O-O? And I'm like, Woo! And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's woo. Well, there's more to it, but yeah. So think about it this way. If, if the strength of Drew, I guess, is positivity and something called woo, their strength, their strength, if, they, if Israel took strength finders, when Nehemiah was saying this, if they took the test, they would say their strength was the joy of the Lord. Their strength was bringing the Lord joy with dancers who dance upon injustice, right? And, and that joy of the Lord was their strength, not military might. It's interesting that they had just rebuilt a wall. They had restored their integrity as a nation. They had the temple. They had a wall. They remembered all of their past ways and the law. And... It wasn't the wall or the military that was their strength. It was the joy of the Lord that was their strength, which is interesting because the very existence of a wall is this quasi-military defense thing. It assumes attack, and it also exudes strength, I guess. But it's not the security of a nation or the supremacy of Israel. It was the joy of the Lord that was their strength as a nation in this circumstance. The strength of this community is the justice that was going on in it. And, and that is what brought the Lord joy. That's what it looks like when God gets what God wants. It looks like a party. It looks like joy. It looks like community. It look, justice is going to be happening. Equality is going to be happening. Like, it's almost like it's not God's kind of party unless the poor are invited and given a means to join in. This is what brings him joy, and it's our strength as the people of God. Let that be said of us. When people say, what is Josh's greatest strength? Let it be said that he brings the Lord joy with the way he dances upon injustice. And this isn't all anyone would normally, like this isn't at all what anyone you would ask would consider a great strength. What's your greatest strength? Um, I include people who wouldn't be able to be a part of something otherwise. And I know some people where I work, let's say, who would say like, oh yeah, that's great. I don't know, and, and have a value for that. But I'm, I also meet people every day who would be like, oh, what are, you, what are you looking for in a great leader? What are some great strengths you're looking for in a leader? Oh, well, you know, you want them to be able to rally people probably want them to be strong, so they probably work out. Um, maybe they were a part of SEAL Team 6. Those guys, those guys seemed like they were in charge and got some stuff done. And, and, and he's an Avenger on the side. He's a part of the Avengers. That, I guess those are leadership qualities. But, but the strength that God delights in, that brings him joy, in, is, is when restoration and reconciliation happen. It's when his heart is on display, when God's people are putting God's heart for the situations of people on display. So let me tell you guys the rest of the story. That's all really good stuff. They did it. They did the thing they set out to do, just like the other two stories. But let me, let me tell you what happened right after that. 
So Nehemiah is walking around the city inside the walls that he finished, and he finds out that the people have not been keeping up and following the laws. Everything that Zerubbabel did for the temple, to build the temple, isn't being kept up. He finds out that Ezra, who had been teaching the law, that the law of God that he had been teaching has been compromised, and that people are working on the Sabbath, which was a big no-no back then, kind of applies today in certain ways. Ask us about that later, um, if you like. And then Nehemiah, who he, he had been building the wall, he starts noticing that people are, are starting markets, little markets around the wall, and working on the Sabbath. Big no-no if you're an Israelite in that time. Just big no-no. So the guy who built the wall, whatever you're picturing in your head when I say guy who's built wants to build a wall, picture that. Just picture that for what I'm about to say. Whatever you're picturing, picture that. The guy who wanted to build a wall and did it goes on a rampage. He goes on a tirade. He goes out into the streets and starts pulling people's hair out, and he starts beating people up (laughs) and commanding them and shouting at them, you need to follow the law of the Torah. You need to follow the law of God. This isn't how you get people to do what you want them to do. Now they're just scared of you and they'll leave or run away. But that, that wasn't the heart of what God wanted anyway. God's heart is the thing behind the law. So the book of Nehemiah ends with a prayer by Nehemiah asking God to remember him. God, remember me. At least I tried. And the story ends. It's just kind of peters out. That's really uncomfortable, isn't it? That's really unfortunate. This is the guy who said, the joy of the Lord is my strength, or is your strength. He declared that to these people. He said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. And we read that on pincushions and see that on motivational posters and, as, and hear that all the time. And some of us take that as promises in our lives. Nehemiah was not wrong when he said, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He totally got a lot of things right, some really cool things, as we just saw happen in Nehemiah's story. But it sounds like the heart was off, right? And if you're reading a Bible up to this point, this seems to be the theme, is that the people of God get to a point, and then their hearts just weren't right, and something happens. And they get to a point, and they're obeying the law, but they aren't getting it. And something happens, and now they're in exile. And just, it seems like it's a cyclical thing that just keeps happening. But that's the thing. God cares about your heart, and God cares that you know his heart. It sounds to me like Nehemiah suffered from something a lot of us often suffer from. Um, We often confuse happiness and joy. Happiness, definition, happiness, I mean, we can all picture happiness. We could probably say what it is. It's you're content or glad in the situation you're in right now. And, but the thing is, when you hold so tightly to something, anything, really, it can be happiness, it can be anything, but when you hold on so tightly to something and you're not wanting that thing to change, you're always going to be disappointed. Un- unfortunately, you will always be disappointed. If you want to stay happy, 
you'll always be disappointed. Because the very nature of happiness is that it's fleeting, and that's not a good thing. That's a beautiful thing. It's here and then it's gone. I think back to the time that my wife and I were in a ball pit a few months ago, and there's a smile on my face. It's beautiful that we were in a ball pit and that we're not in one right now and haven't been since. If we'd been in a ball pit this whole time, it'd get stale. We'd smell bad. It wouldn't be a good... I would. She'd smell great. But (laughs) Nehemiah clearly had his own idealized version of what all of this was supposed to look like. And you can totally tell that by the way he reacted so strongly when when they weren't getting it. When he was ripping people's hair out and beating them up, you can tell he was kind of putting his hope in the wrong thing here. I, I, it's like he could be thinking, I thought all of you were happy, and I thought all of you got it, and we could all be happy together. But it was different than what God's vision of what it was supposed to look like was. And not only that, it was God, God cared about their heart more than anything. I was scrolling, uh, what was it? I, op- I probably only open the Facebook app every few days at this point, but happened to open it this week. And first thing that came up was uh, the timeline thing where they show you something you posted in the past on that exact day. It's kind of embarrassing sometimes, and it's kind of cool to see what your Halloween costume was in 2009. Um, But something came up that I posted, I guess, about seven years ago Thursday. And I just wanted to share it with you guys real quick. Apparently I said this. I don't know if I was quoting something. We tend to live for what makes us happy. Happiness can easily turn into idolatry. I want to experience and share true and enduring joy that can only be found in Christ. Drew Borowski, 2013. Thanks. He, he was looking out back then. He, I don't know. But that, that idolatry, it, it can be an idolatry of the past. And the, like, of the way things were, man, if only things could be that way again, and you dwell on it for so long that you end up losing out on the present, on your future. Or, or it can even be an idealization of the future, or even a fear of, of the future you want to happen not coming to pass. That's what anxiety is, right? The thing is, happiness is circumstantial. Happiness is based on circumstances. I've heard it said that happiness is circumstantial, but joy is eternal. Where, where there is nothing wrong with being happy, it's a beautiful thing. The pursuit of it, the pursuit of happiness, will, honestly, it will always leave you empty because joy, will, joy is what brings you wholeness, completeness. Happiness will never bring you completeness. It will never bring you wholeness because it has to do with circumstances, and circumstances change. Pastor Jacob, when he gave his Fruit in the Spirit series, said... And he was quoting someone who was quoting someone who was quoting someone who was quoting someone. (laughs) But circumstance is just the circle you are standing in. (laughs) If any of you get that joke, it's from the office. (laughs) You can leave that circle you're standing in, and you can change your circumstances by doing that, but then you're just in other circumstances, right? And usually we stop there, and especially America, it's like a tenant of what we do, uh, is the pursuit of happiness, right? But, well, happiness is external, is this external thing. Joy is an internal thing. And, and while you can step out of circumstances, joy, it can also 
It's a choice. It's an inward choice. Sometimes. You choose it sometimes. It's, it's the attitude that God's people adopt. It's what we need to be known for. It's the, if you're dancing upon injustice, the, that's the fruit of joy, by the way. Christian joy, Jacob said, Christian joy is a profound decision of faith and hope in the power of Jesus' own life and love. It taps into the heart of God for the world, and that is what gives us strength and determination to change things. See, joy is not complete without hope. Hope for a better world. You, you need the picture of how it could be. This is something in the story of Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is something that they had. They had the picture of what it could be. They had that hope. And by the third time, I'm sure they were sick of hoping. I'm sure they were tired of hoping. But they found a joy, even for a moment, because justice was being done. You can see it in the story. They threw a God party. You know, um, Jesus, the Bible says in Hebrews, um, that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He knew it was coming. He asked God to take this cup from me, that it would pass from me. He, yeah, we, we know he knew what was coming. He did it anyway. Um, he did it for you, and he did it for me. And he did it with us in mind, and for everyone who ever lived, and, and he was happy to do it. He had that picture of what this could be, and man, what I don't know a better example of dancing upon injustice than the subversive act of dying to kill death itself to all the things that are loaded into that for our redemption. And the night before that happened, on the night, knowing full well what was going to happen to him, on the night he was betrayed, he was around a table with his friends and people that were just about to betray him and people who were just about to run away and not be seen again in the story for a while. And people who were even about to deny that they ever knew Jesus, and he knew that. And in the midst of all of that, he took bread, right? And he gave thanks. And he broke it. And he shared it with the people who were about to fall short, do these things that weren't right. And then he took wine and he gave thanks around the people who he knew were about to do these horrible things. And he said, remember me. And they all drank and they all ate. I don't think it would have been possible without that moment for him to do this. Joy manifests itself into the world through thanksgiving. And if you want to ask the question, what brings joy? It's the hope of the righteous. Often in scripture, if you see the word righteous or righteousness, the word is interchangeable with justice. 
the righteousness of God, the justice of God. It's making things right and people who are making things right. What brings joy? The hope of those who are dancing upon injustice. Hope is what brings joy. It's the hope of the righteous. It's those who want to see justice and enact it in the world. It's made manifest through thanksgiving. So when we take this bread and drink this stuff, let's have faith and hope and thanksgiving even, no matter what our circumstances are, for the world that Jesus so loved so much that he endured the cross. It, it does start with us. These, these things change lives. When, let, let's, when people see, people know joy when they see it, and you know someone who is experiencing joy and living in joy when you see it. Let's be that kind of light. Let's be the people who know how to party that way. Let's be the people who dance upon injustice. People will be able to see it on you. Let's, let's be people whose greatest strength is known in that we are enacting the justice of God on the earth. Let's know that we are bringing him joy and that it's, it's contagious. When Nehemiah talks about the joy of the Lord as your strength, he goes on to talk about them understanding. It says, they understood and they went on with joy. What are they understanding? Their circumstance. See, this is a story of rebuilding something in opposition. I'm pretty sure that most of us have experienced these things in our lives. These are very human things defining the community in the middle of that suffering and that opposition and that rebuilding. Who am I? As I rebuild this broken part of who God made me to be. And then a celebration. And they understood. But it wasn't rebuilt yet. The rebuilding wasn't done. This follows, this story follows a structure of past success, an understanding of, I can trust God because he's come through before, and I know he's going to come through again. Even though my circumstances aren't what I've seen them to be as success, I know that God has a victory for me. I know that when Jesus died on the cross, this is what we're reading in Hebrews, what, what he read, when Jesus died, that redefined my circumstance. This is unbound by time. We sort of skip lots of years, but the story continues. It's bound to this transformation, this expectancy. And that's the hope, what we're expecting. You, you struggle with joy? Do God and yourself a favor and don't numb yourself. Let yourself feel the pain and the burden of your suffering. Don't, because it's scientific. If you numb the suffering, you numb the joy. But if we can continue to feel and think about what God has for us and our brokenness and our suffering and where God's promising us, and maybe you don't experience that 
this week or today. But the joy of the Lord is not your joy. You'll eventually exude that, but your joy might come later. It's his joy of saying, you're broken, but I have something so whole and so beautiful for you. And he looks at you and says, I'm so excited to pull you out of your brokenness and your opposition and your suffering and put you in wholeness. That's the joy that he has when he looks at you. The joy of your victory. Do you have a glimpse of that joy? When you get a glimmer of it, when you get this feeling that God's just holding you, He's so excited for you to receive your victory. Don't let go of that. That is hope. The joy of the Lord is our strength, not the joy I have when I think of the Lord. Be careful. Because there's lament and there's suffering. But the joy of the Lord is our hope, and that hope is what we experience. And eventually peace and joy and forgiveness and trust and all the beautiful, wonderful things, that's wholeness. But don't feel like you've thrown away the joy of the Lord and you failed somehow because you don't feel joy today. Just keep feeling. Hold on to the hope because he's really excited what he has for you. Your suffering is an opportunity for victory. And he's really excited about it. Do you guys agree with that? Is there anybody in this place that needs to like just think about the victory that God has for them? Can you guys stand up just one more time? I just want to pray for you one more time for victory because I know there's a lot of sorrow in this place. I felt it when I walked in and I've talked to a couple people and there's a lot of victory that's coming. So I want you to just close your eyes, lift your hands to Jesus, and I want you to imagine how excited God is right now over your world. There's a victory coming and he's saying, hold on my victory is yours and it is coming god i thank you for the suffering that we go through yes i thank you for it because it's the opportunity god for you to to step in and do what only you can do god and we're saying right now i receive your joy over my life and i receive your victory in my world and in my suffering god i open up and i receive it we receive it in jesus name Spirit, that you would guide us and you would encourage us and you would be the joy that carries us through the day and we would begin to feel the peace beyond the understanding and the joy that you give us. And out of that, we would experience joy and happiness in our lives. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We receive it and we claim a victory. It's coming and we know you've promised it to us. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, before you're dismissed, real quick, I just want to let you know, Brian Lidbeck is coming next week. He's one of my professors. He and JP are like buddies, but he's going to be very different if you're here for JP than probably anything you've heard from us. It's going to be amazing. He's got a doctorate in pneumatology. Yeah, does anybody even know how to spell that or what that even means? Doesn't matter. Show up. He's got the funniest dad jokes on the planet, so if you need some joy and some laughing for some healing, come because he's just 
He's an incredible pre presenter. He's very, he's this, one of the smartest men I know. I probably put him in the top five. He's a genius. So come, you will not. And that takes a time change. So like go to bed early because your, your phones will change for you, but you might feel tired. Show up, please, because Brian will just, he'll bless your socks off. You will really enjoy this. So, um, and we have a slew of, of just voices up here. So I hope you guys are enjoying this. There's more to come. Please continue to just take this in because it's a lot of different perspectives and we want you guys to see all of this.